Okay, if you were here on Christmas Day, you know that the readings always for the second reading in Christmas is John chapter 1. And it is beautiful. It is majestic. It is grand and poetic, that prologue of John, isn't it? It is so highly Christological, descriptive of Jesus as being the Word of God incarnate. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He dwelt among us full of grace and full of truth. It doesn't get any better than that. So you'd expect in the second chapter of John that you would have equally mysterious words, equally glorious descriptions of Jesus. You'd expect his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee would be amazing. He would maybe raise somebody from the dead. Or he would go to a pool and heal some paralytic who's never walked in his entire life. And he would reintroduce him into a healthy society. But none of that. Instead, you get the reading that John just gave us, Father John, as he read about this Martha Stewart miracle, this Bobby Flay thing, this barefoot contessa worried about wine and running out and and what are the proper things to do at a wedding feast. I mean, it's not a good follow-up. I'm like, John, did you waste all your good material in chapter one? What happened? This extra wine at a party, what's the meaning of that? Well, there is meaning. And I want to take you down a road where we're going to just mine some of the nuggets of this scripture for today. Because John says in verse 11 today, he said that this is the first of many signs that Jesus would do. So this is a sign. And and what does this sign, this miracle point us to? Points us to who Jesus is. In fact, in verse 11, it says it was a sign to manifest the glory of Christ. So this, as strange as it seems... This little wedding feast manifests the glory of Jesus. So let's mine it a little bit for nuggets. Chapter 2, verse 1 this morning. You'll see that John, if you have your scriptures, you can turn to it. Uh, If not, uh, just know that it says, on the third day of the week. That's how John introduces this story. Now that may not seem like much to us, but for those people that John wrote to after the resurrection of Jesus... They would have heard three days. There was Friday, then there was Saturday, and then there was Sunday. On the third day. So the wine had run out at the party, and wine means their joy had run out. And on the third day, their joy was replaced as Jesus did this miracle. Just as on the first day on Calvary, the joy had ran, run out. The Savior of the world was crucified And yet on the third day came Easter, the power of God in resurrection glory. Perhaps that's the first sign in the story this morning, Easter. And the second sign is maybe just as hard to find, but look at verse 4. Mary, Jesus' mother, has said, son, do something about this. This young couple's going to be embarrassed. And then in verse 4, Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, I know that sounds like Jesus is being disrespectful, doesn't it? But, but he's really not. In fact, I think the same phrase that he uses there is a phrase of fulfillment. It's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. If you'll remember way back, right after the fall of humankind, right after sin and death had come over and shrouded God's people, that there's a promise of hope, the promise of good news. And it goes like this. As God is handing out punishments, he hands out this punishment to the serpent. 
He said, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. There you go, the woman. What woman is that? Well, maybe it's Mary. Because in the next verse it says, between your offspring, the demonic offspring of Satan, and her offspring, who is whom? Jesus. So there's going to be good versus evil. And what is God going to do? Well, it says that Satan, you will bruise his heel. Jesus' heel gets bruised on Calvary, right? But three days from then, he rises from the dead with joy, with Easter hope. And the other part of that is, but you, Jesus, will crush his head. Jesus will trample down death by his death, rise victorious from the dead, and overcome sin and the devil and the flesh that seems to want to betray us. So how do we know this? Well, you can turn to John chapter 19, 26, and again, Jesus is on the cross, and he looks down at the disciple whom he loves standing nearby, and he says, woman, behold your son. Woman, there again. So Jesus is undoing the ancient curse. That's a good sign, right? The next sign, it's at a wedding. Now, what do weddings symbolize? Now, this is some country wedding with some obscure people. John doesn't even take time to mention their names. But the wedding is important because it points us to another wedding that's going to take place later. And it's the wedding banquet at the end of time that for all believers we'll enjoy union with God and union with the saints once again in heaven. In fact, in John's revelation in 19.9, he'll put it this way. The angel speaks to him and says, John, write this down on a piece of paper. Actually, probably uh, in that age, it might have been paper. It might have been something else. But he says, blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, write this down too. These are the true words of God. Now, that's a good sign, right? A wedding at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, pointing us to a wedding at the end of time, a banquet where we will all enjoy the feast, where the wine, the joy never runs out, and the people of God are thoroughly nourished in God's grace. That's a good sign. Now, why wine? Wine for Jewish people would symbolize joy, right? Celebration, right? And so celebration of this end-time banquet is important for wine. The wine had run out. God's going to replace the wine later. In Isaiah 25, there's an ancient prophecy. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich foods for all people, a banquet of well-aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines, and the shroud that had covered God's people will be lifted off forever. Now, what's the shroud? It's death. Through Jesus, he brings back the wine. He brings back the joy that we don't have to face death alone. We've got a Savior that stands in the gap, and his blood bridges that gap, atones for our sins, and lets us go into heaven triumphantly. That's what that means. That's a good sign. In verse 6, we find that there are six jugs that Jesus uses. They're jugs for purification. Now, why the number six? Because in the Jewish world, six means incomplete. It means not yet there. It's short of God's perfection and glory. So the term 666 for the Antichrist means imperfect, 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 evil, not yet blessed by God. So the six jugs of purification... John is, what is saying to us that the old rites of Jewish purification are not enough. 
that until Jesus comes in to bless those jugs with living forgiveness and grace, they are ineffectual to wash us free from our sins. Now, we're baptizing some children today. That water is an ancient rite of purification. But that water cannot wash away the sins of these children. Only the blood of Jesus can do that, okay? So we've got to instruct these children in Christ. Because what does Jesus do? He takes six incomplete jugs for purification and changes them into wine, which represents for us what? The Eucharist, the blood of Christ. So you can be washed in the water, but until they're washed in the blood through a living relationship with the Savior, it's ineffectual. So this water today will point them to Jesus, but then you've got to do your job, parents, godparents, and grandparents, of pointing them to the Savior so that they can have a living relationship. Now he turns six jugs of 30-gallon jugs of wine, of water, into wine. That's 180 gallons today. you got to think to yourself, what are you trying to do? Make these people comatose? I mean, they've already been drinking all week long. They're at this long, week-long wedding feast, and, and he gives 180 gallons to them? Well, here's the deal. I think it's the same sign that he'll give later as he divides loaves and fishes and feeds a multitude of people. Because at the end of that feast, there are 12 baskets left over. Today, there's 180 gallons of wine, more than they could consume. I think that's a sign of God's grace, that when you receive his forgiveness and mercy and grace, there is more than enough to cleanse your sin-sick soul, to raise you up to be born again as a living new creature, and there's more grace than you can ever exhaust. It's God's grace upon your life. And finally, at the end of the story, the wine steward steps in. Now, the wine steward's job was to make sure that the wine never ran out, to make sure it lasted to the end of the party, and so he would water down the wine at the end of the week to make sure it went far enough. But they'd already been drinking. What did they care? So he comes in and takes a ladle of this fine wine that Jesus has prepared for his people and sips a little bit. And he says, oh, my goodness. He saved the best for last. This is Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, A.D. 30. This is the good stuff. You think maybe that's a sign for God's people? God sent the patriarchs and instructed them in his ways. God sent the judges, and they were great. God sent the kings to rule over God's people. God sent the prophets to turn the people's heart back to the living God. And finally, God sent his one and only son, Jesus. He saved the best wine for the very last. And we know that we're living in the end times, in the last days, and that through Jesus, his unique and only son, is salvation. He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one else comes to the Father except through him. So we can wash these children in the water today. They need to be washed in the blood. They need living signs that will point them to Jesus all the days of their lives. And so today, we remember this joy that comes through wine, this wedding celebration that's an end-time banquet for all believers. We remember that Jesus said, I came that you might have joy and have it abundantly. I came that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. When you receive Jesus as your Savior, you've got more than enough grace and mercy and joy. The wine ran out. That means their joy ran out. When Jesus is with you, your wine never runs out. 
Psalm 104.15 says, Wine gladdens the heart of man, but only for a minute. Jesus gladdens the heart of man for eternity. So, in verse 11 today, the disciples that were with Jesus saw all these signs, and it says they believed on him. If you're in this church today and have not received that invitation to the end-time banquet, if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, perhaps today's the day. Maybe you were baptized in water years ago, and today's the day you receive his blood and nourishment, the washing away of forgiveness for all your sins forever. And you parents and godparents, your calling and responsibility is to be living signs to point these children to Jesus that they too might see and believe. Washed in the water is great, washed in the blood is better. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that this day we might receive these signs of a Savior who, who uh, took those incomplete jars of purification in water and made them complete in his blood that he might atone for all of our sins and make all things new again. Making us new creatures, dear Lord, as we put our faith and trust in you today. Bring us your joy, your wine. It promises a feast in heaven where your wine will never run out and the food will never stop uh, coming. So thank you, dear Lord, for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.